This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH, and today I am joined by the brilliant Dr. Keir Shields, a consultant in general paediatrics at GOSH, textbook author and examiner for the Diploma of Child Health. He is talking to me today about brew in neonates, and if you don't know what that is yet, you will by the end of this podcast. But be reassured that it covers several sections on the RCPCH curriculum, particularly under the neonatal section, but could also come up in the clinical exam in either the history taking or communication skills station. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you, Dr. Shields, for coming on the show again today. Thank you very much for having me. So what would you like people to get out of the podcast today? I think actually that's the most important question you're going to ask in this session because most of the people listening to this will probably be working at Great Ormond Street and therefore not have ready access to cases like this, which turn up in A&E all the time, turn up in GP practices all the time and form a really fundamental basis for the the theory and the practical exams. And so it's something that while you're learning all about pyloric stenosis and esoteric metabolic diseases that you're going to miss here. And it's really well worth sticking around for the next half hour to learn about something that's pretty common and whose management has changed in the last couple of years as well. So we're talking today about brew. Now, being a northerner, I tend to think of brew as being a nice cup of tea, but I understand it has a different meaning here today. Could you explain that to the listeners? It it does indeed. Some people may well be thinking of something more alcoholic as well, but this is a different spelling. This is B-R-U-E, a brief, resolved, unexplained event. And that is a terminology that has replaced something that your consultant colleagues and tutors will probably still be calling ALTES, A-L-T-E-S. And that used to stand for an apparent life-threatening event. Now, most of these presentations which involve sort of babies going floppy or stopping breathing or being a little bit quiet and blue for a a short period of time have got a fairly benign underlying pathology. And it was felt that it's very difficult to reassure parents when the word life-threatening is in the diagnosis. So this new nomenclature has come out called BREW, which is still not particularly well-known and popular amongst the more senior doctors who look after children and still gets sort of crossed into stuff that may well end up coming into PICU. So it's really important to be able to pick this apart because you guys, the junior doctors of today, are going to be carrying this nomenclature forward. So it has replaced the ALTI. What are the criteria for an episode to be called a brew? Yeah, the the key elements of a brew are, and I know this is going to sound really silly, is that it's brief and that it gets better on its own and it doesn't have a really easy explanation. In other words, it's brief, resolved and unexplained. Now, I, I know that that's sort of really oversimplifying things. But the important things about a brew are that generally speaking, they only occur in infants under 12 months old. So we're looking at the neonatal and infant population. They last 
under a minute, typically around about 20 seconds. And even that is sort of accelerated by a parent's impression of how long time is when they're in a bit of an anxiety episode and, and panic about what's going on in their child. They probably last even less time than that. It's just every second feels like a minute when yeah. your child's not breathing. So it's usually an episode of cyanosis or pallor with reduced or irregular breathing with a concomitant change in the tone of a child that could be hyper or hypotonia and usually an altered level of consciousness in in some manner or speaking that's not explained by a known underlying medical condition. So it's brief in that it's 20 seconds. It's resolved in that it gets better on its own and gets back to a baseline state. And it's unexplained insofar as it doesn't link in with a known medical condition that the child already has. And it is an event that is characterized by breathing and tone abnormalities. Thank you. That's a great definition. How common are these events? So these events are really common. And when you sort of add in the fact that choking episodes and gagging episodes and and straining while you're having a poo episodes and normal jerky movements all can play into this. It's, It's really, really common. And you'll have several babies presenting with something like this, turning up to A&E every week and certainly turning up to GP practices as well. And it's really difficult when you've got something that's common to try and pick out which ones to worry about and which ones not to worry about. And so a really thorough history is really important in these cases because you need to take a good history about their sort of their sleeping position, whether it's happened when they're upright or when asleep, who was with the child at the time, what the environment and sleeping arrangements and temperature and and so forth are like, and the potential for accidental ingestion of things. There's, There's a lot to unpick that's just not even basic medical history taking, but just basic social and family history taking around the atmosphere that a baby's brought up in. Sure. I mean, given that it's potentially quite a complex issue to unpick, as you said, do you have any kind of structure for categorizing these events, either in terms of causes or your approach to to managing them? Yeah. So the American Pediatric Association has, in the last few years, produced a new guideline for the risk stratification of these episodes. And, you know, you've got to pick apart whether a baby's just had a bit of a coughing episode or choking episode just because it's happened. cough and choke. Oh, uh, yeah, because they sometimes cough and choke and all babies vomit and all babies strain to poo sometimes. But equally, you've got to make sure that there's nothing else going on. So when you're taking a history, you've got to get a really good idea of the duration of an event for a start. And as I said earlier, most parents probably feel that it's gone on for a lot longer than it has. You ask how long these go on, most people say about a minute. But if you really hone in on it and ask, well, what were you able to do during this period? What did you do? Did you blow on the face? Did you call the name? You know, Did you ring for an ambulance? How long did it take before everything had gone back to normal? You can generally pair this back down to about 20 seconds. And sometimes you can even start a stopwatch and say, right, I'm just going to start a stopwatch there. And I just want you to play through in your head what happened and say, stop roughly when you think that 
the episode stopped. And usually you get a good idea of, of how long it went on for. It's also a really good idea to get an idea of whether the parent performed any CPR on the child. I'll come back to that a little bit later. And whether the recovery of the child was gradual or rapid, and whether there were any sort of residual symptoms left over. It's also essential to work out whether this has ever happened before. A final piece of information, a little nugget that is really, really useful in the history taking is always ask when there's been a color change, precisely what color a baby has gone. Have they gone blue? Have they gone pale? Have they gone gray? Generally speaking, if a baby's gone red, that's fine. Babies go red when they're straining and struggling, when they have got good oxygenation and they're breathing well. So if they're doing a really, really big poo, they tend to go bright red and stop breathing, just like you and I use a Valsalva maneuver to pop our ears when we're on an aeroplane or ourselves to empty our bowels. Babies do the same. So a red baby is usually a reassuring baby. You need to risk stratify children based on the history into low risk or high risk. And the low risk children are the ones who are over two months old, who were not premature, which you can use a sort of cutoff really of, of 32 weeks for prematurity, because that's the age that you start producing surfactant in your lungs and start getting chronic lung disease if you're, if you're born premature. So after 32 weeks is generally all right. So are they over two months old? Are they born after 32 weeks? Was CPR not required? Now, this is usually CPR by a trained medical professional or a paramedic, rather than just whether a bystander immediately blew into a mouth and everything got better. Yeah. So you've got to take that slightly with a pinch of salt. And also the fact that it lasted less than a minute and was the first ever time this has happened. Much like with seizures, we investigate bruise more heavily after the second one rather than after the first one. So any child's allowed to have one brief resolved unexplained event. And those are your low risk categories. So just to recap, low risk if they're over two months old, if they're born after 32 weeks, if there was no CPR, and if it's the first brief event lasting under a minute, those are your four low risk criteria. And if you're satisfied that your infant meets those low risk criteria, are there any investigations that you would do? This is a really important question because I want to reflect briefly on how people answer exam questions before I answer that. The trickiest exam questions are the ones where you're given a clinical history and lots of options about what to do. And one of the options is reassure the parents and discharge. And it's very difficult to put that down as an answer in an exam because it sort of feels to the candidate, like you're you're missing something and that it's a very brave answer to write down. This is one of the topics where you're going to be tested on your ability actually to reassure people and not do very much. So it's, it's important to have a good grasp of what these low risk babies are like. In answer to your question, would you do any investigations? You probably want to keep them to a minimum. So it's reasonable to do something that's non-invasive like an ECG. It's reasonable to do a blood sugar, certainly on a, a young baby, just to make sure that they're not hypoglycemic or don't have a feeding issue. And it's also potentially worth doing a urine dip and culture because 
UTIs can be quite silent in this age group. And you, you know, a, a UTI is a, a common cause of failure to thrive, for example, because they can be chronic and subclinical in babies. But ultimately, you shouldn't be performing many investigations on these on these children at all. And a blood sugar in an ECG is probably the maximum that you should be doing on a low risk child. And then moving to high risk children, presumably their risk factors would just be the opposite of the low risk factors. So premature, less than two months. Is that right? So, yes, any child who's got an underlying medical condition is automatically higher risk, which you can understand if they've got chronic lung disease, they're more likely to have desaturation episodes in the context of bronchiolitis, or they're more likely to be unimmunized if they're under two months old and therefore be much more at risk of whooping cough or sepsis. So generally speaking, the higher risk categories require a lot more observation and potentially investigation. So those are the ones who it's worth just admitting the child to hospital overnight, not necessarily even to do much other than to keep an eye on their saturations and see if they have more of these episodes. You don't need to go down a septic screen route, for example, just because a child has had a single sort of choking episode or has gone floppy and recovered very, very quickly at home. But the important thing is to know which subset of this huge number of babies who presents to hospital you need to worry about. And the ones that have risk factors are the ones that you need to bring in, have a period of continuous pulse oximetry, and then investigations that are guided by the history and examination findings. So obviously you put a stethoscope on every single child, regardless if they're low risk or high risk. And if you find a heart murmur, then that turns into a high risk situation. But generally speaking, you want to do as little as possible in the low risks and then observe the high risks. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about the differential diagnosis of a brew, because the definition of brew means that the minute you make a diagnosis, it's no longer a brew. Yes, it's no longer unexplained. Exactly. So what conditions might mimic a brew and what would be in the back of your mind as a differential? The things that you've got to look out for are sort of two different things. You've got to look firstly at risks that the baby might be in in the family environment that are not clinical conditions. So stuff like, are the parents smoking in the family home? Are they co-sleeping? All of the sort of risk factors for sudden infant death syndrome, you've got to just make sure that those risk factors aren't there. That's that's the first thing to, to bear in mind, which is nothing really to do with your clinical assessment. It's only really to do with situational vigilance. The next area that you've got to look at is, as you say, the the conditions that can mimic a brew. And I guess you've got to, to stratify those by organ systems. The most likely diagnosis that you're going to come to is going to be gastroesophageal reflux. Every single baby in the world has got some degree of reflux because they've naturally got a very floppy valve between their esophagus and their stomach. And that means as soon as you lie them flat, milk will start refluxing up. And that only really resolves with a solid diet when you're actually sitting up. So all babies have got some degree of reflux and are going to have an occasional choking episode, an occasional vomiting episode, occasional stiffening and posture that's a bit abnormal. So getting on top of reflux is really important. But equally that, 
that is a clinical diagnosis. You don't have to do a pH study or impedance study on every single baby that comes with a brew, but a good quality history is going to pick apart which babies are really suffering from their reflux and which ones don't need to be treated. So that's the first one. It's important in the high risk babies to look for signs of airway obstruction and cardiac disease. Although those are much less likely, they are the ones who are going to produce a slightly longer episode, particularly with cyanosis. Um, They're the ones who are going to have an abnormal rhythm or a heart murmur or have breathing abnormalities in terms of the tone and timbre of their breathing. So it's really essential to pick apart the ones who, when you lie them down and they go to sleep, they're suddenly stridulous or when they're feeding, they're getting a bit sweaty. That's all part of the classic neonatal history. I guess it's also important to look for signs of infection. So pneumonias, particularly pertussis, can present with coughs and apneas. And apneas are much more common in the much younger babies. So the younger they are, the more vulnerable they are to an atypical presentation of pertussis. Looking for fevers, looking for signs of focal crackles on examination or early bronchiolitis in children who are at risk is also important. There's also the metabolic diseases. So you're looking at hypoglycemia, inborn errors of metabolism, ammonias in children who have maybe been struggling to thrive or have had recurrent episodes like this. And so the ones who are hypoglycemic will tend not just to present once, but to have this time and time again. And that's one of the reasons why looking at a second presentation is really important, because getting on top of a recurrent presentation is probably going to be life-saving in children who've got an underlying metabolic disease. The final group that you really need to look out for is another classic exam question, which is the non-accidental or inflicted injuries. And so babies who are being neglected or babies who are being physically abused will sometimes have episodes of apnea, particularly associated with subdural hematomas. So if you've got a suspicion that something's not quite right in the history, um, if you've got unexplained bruises on the baby, if you've got a baby who's particularly cranky when their leg is being moved or, or, or something like that that suggests an unexplained injury, that needs significant investigation. But if they've got an intracranial bleed, they're not just going to present with one single short episode. It's going to be something that is ongoing. So these are why the risk stratification is really important in looking not just about whether it's brief and unexplained, but also when we say resolved, we don't just mean resolved on that instant and on multiple instances. Resolved just means once it's resolved and it hasn't come back. If it comes back, it really merits further investigation. Thank you. That's a really excellent summary. Now just on to the quickfire questions that we like to ask to everybody. Firstly, are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject? There are probably two common situations in exams where brews come up. The first is in the non-scientific 
papers, the clinical papers of the written exam. And you will get loads of questions in those exams about a baby coming into A&E or to the clinic who has had some sort of episode. And it's really tempting to assume that because it's an exam, every baby could be sepsis because that's how we're trained in APLS. It's how we're trained to be vigilant throughout our medical education. It will be very easy to see any funny movement as a possible seizure and be ultra safe and get EEGs and CT scans and really over-investigate. But the membership exam is really trying to be a fair reflection of life. And because of that, there will be questions in which the correct answer is reassure and don't do anything. So really learn the risk stratification and apply it with a ruthlessness in the exam. That's really important because you don't want to be lumbar puncturing every baby that you see, and you don't want to be admitting every baby that you see, and you will have to reassure people. Tangentially linked with that is the way that they can come up in the clinical exam. And I think it's much more likely to turn up in a communication scenario than in any other sort of station in the exam. And talking to an anxious parent and reassuring them that there is nothing wrong, whilst at the same time knowing what to do in the context of a brief resolved unexplained event is really important. And picking apart which babies need to be admitted and which babies need to be reassured is a classic and very important skill to have and is totally fair. So you may end up having to make a clinical judgment about whether a child is admitted and reassure a parent that they don't. And having a flustered, anxious parent to calm down would be a good quality communication scenario and one that could easily apply for the Diploma of Child Health as well as the MRC-PCH. Second question, are there any useful resources that you would recommend? So in terms of resources, Almost every resource that's out there is based on the same set of guidelines, which is from the American Pediatric Association. And if you go to the Don't Forget the Bubbles website, which is a largest international collaboration for pediatric medical education worldwide, they've got a really good analysis of the original American Pediatric Association paper and guideline and show how it's had a really positive impact since being implemented. So go there to understand the evidence base and how it has been applied. But almost every public available guideline now, whether it's from Sheffield Children's, which have got some great guidelines, or the NHS Scotland, or the RCHEM, which is the Royal College of Emergency Medicine guidelines, they're all based on exactly the same flowchart. So the great thing about this topic is that there is just one way to think about it. And wherever you look it up, as long as you're looking up brew, rather than ALTI, because you may get some out-of-date information if you look up ALTI, you're going to get a guideline that is pretty consistent with everything else available. So Google the guidelines. Sheffield Children's and NHS Scotland are always very good, but don't forget the bubbles remains a great place to understand an evidence base. And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points? So the three takeaway learning points about brews are, number one, it's usually nothing. And therefore, reassurance is often the right thing to do. Number two, the way that you can persuade yourself of that is by good history taking and risk stratification. Learn the four or five 
factors that make something low risk. It's a child who is over two months old. It's a child who isn't premature. It's a child without any background medical condition. It's a child who has got sick and wobbly for a very short period of time, but has got better very quickly and back to their baseline. Those are the ways that you risk stratify. And if there's anything that seems a bit odd, this is point number three, then observation is investigation. If they've been a bit blue for a bit longer than it seems is right, if they've had some really funny movements, if you can't put it down to reflux, then bring them in, observe them and watch them, but don't bring in everybody. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Dr. Shields. That's been really helpful and we look forward to hearing from you again in the future. Thank you. I'm looking forward to coming back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via social media. You can find Gosh Learning Academy on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. If you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.